Hello and welcome to another episode of the EDS at Union Now podcast. In today's episode, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas will continue the Being Church in the Time of COVID-19 series where she brings attention to the underlying issues of injustice, poverty, and racism that this crisis has exposed. Today, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas is speaking with Ali Nurani. Ali is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. They discuss COVID-19's impact on immigrants and asylum seekers and the ways that the National Immigration Forum is supporting this vulnerable population. A video version of this podcast is also available on the EDS at Union Facebook page and the Union Theological Seminary YouTube channel. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to EDS at Union now wherever you listen to podcasts and help us spread the word by sharing this show with your friends and family. And with that, here is our conversation with Dean Kelly Brown Douglas. Good afternoon. I'm Kelly Brown Douglas and I am Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York. I thank you all for joining us in this second of our Facebook Live conversations on being church in the time of COVID-19. I am honored to have joining me today, Mr. Ali Nurani, who is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. This forum was founded in 1982 as a nonpartisan advocacy organization working with faith, law enforcement, and business leaders to promote the value of immigrants and immigration. Thank you, Ali, for being a part of this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. There's so much to cover. So I want to jump right in. You state as one of the forum's objectives that as an organization, you would like to help the nation become a nation of laws and grace. So I wanna explore with you what that might look like in this time of COVID-19 in relationship to the immigrant and asylum seeking communities as well as the role that faith communities can play in that. So let me begin by simply asking you what in this time of COVID-19 does it look like to become a nation of grace? And how can faith leaders help in that? Well, uh, first of all, um, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. I um, really, really admire the work of, of the, 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 sem- the school. Uh, um, and really, I'm just looking forward to hopefully this being the first of many, many conversations. Indeed. So um, we've learned, we've come to believe quite strongly that Americans have three fears when it comes to immigration, culture, security, and the economy. And when it comes to the culture, the question or the fear is often, are immigrants, are they integrating and they isolating? From a, a security perspective, the question is, are immigrants and refugees, are they threats or protectors? And then from a, a economic perspective, the question is, are immigrants and refugees givers or takers? Mm-hmm. Now, even before COVID-19, these fears were, were visceral to so, so many Americans. And you know, um, we've always felt that as advocates is that if we dismiss these fears, then we're never actually engaged in a conversation to persuade somebody to change their mind. Now in the, the context of COVID-19, those fears for many Americans are even more, uh, uh, more tangible. They're, 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 they're top of mind. 
you know, from a security perspective, from an economic perspective, from a cultural perspective, obviously from a health perspective. So for us, we think that being able to try to find this balance between being a nation of laws that, yes, we have borders, yes, we have to be clear about uh, um, having a sense of control, but it has to be more than ever at this moment be balanced with a sense of grace because um, COVID-19 doesn't discriminate. That's right. COVID-19, quite frankly, thinks that we're all Americans, whether we've been here for generations or that we've been here for months. So for us to be a nation of grace at this particular time means that we are acknowledging the, the dignity that each human being has been given, uh, that each human being has. Um, and we, I think, have it's, imper it's uh, imperative that we all not just understand and respect and honor that dignity, but that we understand that the immigrant is the doctor, is the farm worker, is the cashier at the shopping, at the, 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 the supermarket, um, is the person delivering food. Um, and I think that the, the faith community plays a particularly important role in not just helping the American public understand the contributions of the immigrant community, but then also directly helping the immigrant community through this crisis. Well, thank you uh, for that. And, and, and I think you're so right. One of the things that this COVID pandemic has helped us to recognize is in fact, not only are we all sacred human beings and uh, should be treated as such, but it has also helped us to recognize that the borders we enact uh, are simply false borders, that we are all one global community uh, and that what impacts one impacts us all. And so it has helped us, I think, to recognize how in fact we are all one community and a virus like this is no respecter uh, of persons. No one is more privileged than the other. Uh, when it comes to the way this virus strikes. Yet, there are those who may in fact be more penalized uh, than others, uh, like uh, the immigrant community, because as we have seen, not only uh, has this crisis brought our attention to the way in which we are in fact all one, but it is also revealed more clearly an ongoing crisis in this country of endemic injustice and gross disparities. And so we see how a crisis like this can in fact more greatly impact uh, certain communities uh, than others. And so as we see that, one of the particular concerns uh, in terms of the immigrant community is the health crisis uh, that, that is uh, COVID and how that impacts. You were on a recent telephone call with the Trump administration, as well as uh, members of Congress and other uh, social uh, leaders and faith leaders. And in that conversation, uh, many people raised the concern, particularly about immigrants who are being held in detention centers and the particular danger and concerns and issues there. Can you speak to that? Sure. So at this point, there are on any given day, there are anywhere between, say, 37 to 50,000 immigrants who are in detention facilities. Some of those are uh, uh, single men, single women, families, children. Uh, and these detention facilities, by design, are set up so that it is impossible to, to adhere to any sort of social distancing. That's just not the way detention facilities, much less prisons, are set up. So our fear here is that 
uh, whether it is a detention facility or even a prison, uh, um, that we will start to, we'll begin to see an outbreak of COVID-19 within these facilities. So on this, we did, it was a telephonic press conference that we did last week. And one of our speakers was um, uh, Chief James Lopez. He's retired from the LA County Sheriff's Department. Mm -hmm. And he made the case that um, as, a sheriff, as sheriff's deputies, as any law enforcement official, you have a duty of care. If somebody is in your care, you have you're in your 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 facility, you have a duty to care for that person. So within that line of reasoning, he made the case, and we would fully agree with it, is that the Trump administration should be releasing nonviolent uh, uh, immigration detainees. Um, if you need to release them with an alternative detention, such as an ankle bracelet, but anything that we can do to get them out of these facilities so that they are protected the officers are protected, the staff are protected, um, because I think we, we often forget that, you know, the, whether it's an immigration officer or a, a staff person, they're going into these facilities and we see an outbreak in the facilities. Excuse me, Ali, I think we're having trouble picking up your sound. Yeah, we are, we are not, at the moment, I'm not getting your sound. There you go. There we go. We're back. Thank you. Let's let's follow up on that. You suggested, and I'm uh, not sure if our audience heard it, so I'll repeat it. That in fact, one of the solutions is to release particularly nonviolent detainees, uh, whether that's making sure that they have ankle bracelets or whatnot, so that they are not really uh, finding themselves in a breeding ground uh, for this virus. So the next aspect of that is that even as immigrants uh, and asylum seekers are released, and even those who have not been in detention, there are barriers to their being able to receive the healthcare that they need, barriers that have been there prior to this crisis that are only exacerbated uh, with the advent of this uh, COVID-19 crisis. Can you speak again to some of those barriers and how we might alleviate those and what we can do as even communities of faith to help alleviate those? So we talked. I talked earlier about the fears that people uh, one of those fears is an economic fear that an immigrant is taking a, a program or, or a job, a service or a job from somebody else. Well, when it comes to services, um, if an immigrant is here legally, they are not eligible for any federal programs unless they've had their green card for five years. Um, if you're here undocumented, you don't have access to anything. Now, the one exception here is emergency medical care, but I would argue pretty strongly, particularly in this moment, that emergency medical care is for the good of us all. So in the context of the COVID-19 crisis, and particularly with respect to the stimulus package that was signed into law last week, um, immigrants still do not have access. They will have, in some states, they'll have access to testing. And you know, very few states will they have access to treatment. So what is happening here, and the way that we've been putting it is that the economic and the health dominoes that are starting to fall across the country, they will fall hardest upon those at the margins of society. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get much further from a mar the margin to the margin of society than being an immigrant who's undocumented, who has very limited access to testing 
much less any sort of treatment. Um, so we believe that in, if there is another COVID-19 uh, bill that was to move through Congress, that testing and treatment should be expanded to the entirety of the immigrant community, um, as well as any sort of cash assistance. Because again, COVID-19 doesn't discriminate based on immigration status. Um, therefore, in our recovery, in our efforts to mitigate and, and contain this, this virus, we should, not, we should not be thinking uh, uh, that people are, are different. So as you speak about the fears, I wanna uh, talk about that from the side of uh, immigrants uh, uh, as well, because even is there this fear that if indeed they go in to seek treatment that they become known as the public debt as this uh, administration has articulated and that their deportation uh, becomes even more imminent. Uh, and so what are the fears and probably rightly so that are also preventing immigrants from getting the health care that they need, particularly uh, in this time of crisis and emergency? So let me take a step back. So last year, summer, fall, the administration announced a new regulation that would in essence say that um, if I'm here and I have, uh, I'm, a, I'm here legally and I'm applying for a green card in order to become a citizen, um, if an, the immigration officer who's conducting, who's con, you know, going through my paperwork believes that I will at some point in the future use a public program or a public uh, cash assistance, then that in, individual immigration officer can say, I am a public charge and therefore should not be allowed to be, get my green card, much less become a citizen. So the criteria for becoming a uh, being counted as a public charge expanded dramatically. Mm -hmm. And many see this as a backdoor way of really slashing legal immigration. That's right. Now, the Trump administration, when COVID-19 crisis emerged, they said that testing and treatment would not be held against somebody for public charge uh, 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 measurement, if you will. Um, but still, what remains is the fear within the immigrant community of, okay, if I go and get this test, um, am I going to be able to, my, is my family going to go on, going to be able to become citizens? So that fear we worry is, is going to stand in between somebody, you know, feeling ill and getting tested. And if that happens, then, you know, we're all, we all are, are in danger. Again, I think this is the, the important role of the faith community to provide, to be providing the information so that people know what they're eligible for and feel comfortable and protected in, uh, as they seek testing. Yeah, you know, one thing that uh, we have, and as we see through even this Facebook Live conversation is a voice. And so I hear very much uh, your call to us as faith leaders and in particular uh, in diverse communities in which we find ourselves right. to do our part in reducing the fear for the immigrants as well as the fear of, the fear of, if you will, uh, immigrants and helping us to recognize that we are all a part of this together and that what's impacting one community is impacting uh, each of us. And I, I would say, I would say just on, on that note, if you don't mind, um, yeah. I think the relational aspect of, of our nation is really being stretched right now or torn, um, that, that the fabric and, mm -hmm. you know, it's now that, that the visual of the fabric of the country. Um, and how it's really being, being stressed has, I think, never be, been more clear. So if all of us who 
um, are fortunate enough to be working at home, who are fortunate enough to have the technology to remain communicated. Uh, we still feel isolated. That's but right. imagine if you're an immigrant uh, who may or may not have that access to a technology, who may still have to go into work. Um, you feel even more afraid and isolated. Uh, so I think that the, the relational power of faith and of faith leaders has never been more important for the immigrant community. Very well said, and, and thank you for saying that. And I was in an earlier conversation with this topic of isolation and fear uh, also came up. And just as you said, imagine those of us who are connected and the fears that we feel and the sense of isolation that we feel, uh, what those who are truly disconnected uh, will feel. Let's, let's talk about the workers uh, and the immigrant community when it comes to employment. And we have seen again, how this crisis is a, has been a, an employment crisis, right? Or an economic uh, crisis. And again, this crisis, even as a health crisis and an economic crisis will only impact, impacts even greater and devastates those communities that have already uh, been on the margins or those communities that have already been considered expendable. I keep saying our task as a faith community is to not only lift up uh, the injustices against these uh, marginalized communities, but to make sure that the expendable don't become the disposable. Uh, and so I think of this in terms of the economic crisis. You have stated uh, through your podcast, which by the way, I recommend for everyone to listen to. It's called Only in America. And you have done a series that is focused on the myth of the immigrant burden. Uh, I say this is must listening for everybody. Uh, uh, as a part of that series, you have talked about, of course, the myth that the immigrant uh, is taking more than they are bringing and that they are an economic burden uh, to say the least. Yet you also point out that 22% uh, of all restaurant workers are immigrants as opposed to quote unquote native born. Uh, and as well that 30 33% or so of all immigrants are hotel uh, owners and that immigrants are twice as likely to start a business uh, as quote unquote, those who are domestic born. When I think of that, I think of how this crisis must disproportionately impact uh, the immigrant community. Can you speak of that in terms of the short-term as well as the long-term impact? Sure. Well, I think it's also important to, to acknowledge and recognize that you know, this crisis impacts all of us, um, whether we've been here for generations, our families have been here for generations or we've been here for months. Um, so I think that's just like we don't want the immigrant community to be othered. I also want to be sure that we're not othering uh, the rest of the country. Um, so like you said, the, the immigrant community is contributing to healthcare, to restaurants, the service sector. You know, 70% of farm workers are undocumented. Um, so in the long term, in the short term, what this means is that, uh, you know, many small businesses, small restaurants, your, you know, your favorite, you know, uh, Mexican restaurant, your favorite Chinese restaurant, they're going to be really struggling to make it through this crisis. Um, their staff are going to really be struggling. So in the short term, you have 
business revenue falling, you potentially have businesses closing. In the long term, what this means is that not only are these businesses taken off of uh, off of the table, but also then the purchasing power of that's those staff of their families is also weakened considerably. You know, so there's an, a range of data out there that will point to the purchasing power of you know immigrants and refugees in large cities. Now we do a lot of work in rural and suburban America, mm-hmm. and you know it is remarkable how suburban downtowns, rural downtowns have been revitalized by the immigrant business community. What's going to be happening to those towns and cities that are not necessarily major metropolitan areas, but if this virus really spreads across the country, um, those small towns and cities, um, they're really going to struggle to come back. Uh, And, you know, the cities are going to have a tough time, but there's, you know, with density comes a little bit more of a lift. Uh, Without that density, it's going to be much more difficult. So to add to that and and sort of uh, the ability for all of us, especially for the immigrant community to begin to rebuild uh, their businesses, uh, we have the fact that this COVID virus has also taken on racialized tones uh, and that has impacted a particular uh, segment of the immigrant community. And so I'm wondering, what that might mean when that is compounded with fears that many people already had. Yeah, you're still, we're working from home. So I, so I acknowledge I that, uh, <laughs> that you are uh, at work and getting texts and getting calls. I think many of our viewers will understand what it means to multitask. Uh, and, I, uh, and I'm in my parents' house and I just, you know, answered the phone and hung it up. So somebody's going to be quite irritated with parents. <laughs> I appreciate that. So we, I think we we will uh, be okay uh, with those kind of interruptions. Okay. And, uh, and even as you have the background of cherry blossoms, you're actually in a home. Uh, but, uh, but what I'm wondering is that yeah. what impact, you know, will this fact that it has become racialized, et cetera, what impact might that have on immigrants as they began to try to rebuild their businesses and to get help to do that? Uh, when you compound that with fears, uh, myths, if you will, that were already there. So, you know, I, I think when the administration really took uh, far too long to back off of their language of of really scapegoating the Asian community around this virus. Uh, uh, You know, the president took far too long to change his language. You know, I just saw some news this morning of uh, just a terrible hate crime in Texas where three uh, Chinese American individuals were were beaten and the the, uh, alleged uh, uh, um, uh, person, uh, you know, the alleged criminal said, well, you know, he thought that they were uh, spreading the coronavirus. Um, so I think, unfortunately, we're going to see more incidents like that in the near future. Um, and I think it's imperative that uh, um, we, we frankly ignore the leaders who are, who are trying to scapegoat uh, the immigrant community, much less the Asian community. Um, I think that if we, I fear that if we start to see outbreaks within, you know, along the border or even in detention facilities, um, the immigrant community writ large will be scapegoated. Um, and I, you know, not, not to put this all on, on you, but it is the faith community yeah, that exactly. I think is going to provide the way for people to understand um, that, you know, the stranger truly is their neighbor. Um, and that it's, we need to, at this moment, more than ever, 
recognize and value the dignity that each one of us has. No, I, I think you should put it on uh, us and the faith uh, community. Uh, this is who we claim to be. And so in so many respects, the faith community is being called to account uh, in this crisis, as well as it's been on our watch prior to this crisis that the, this gross injustice and inequities have grown. And so uh, I think you're right that this is, this is in our ballpark uh, in terms of that which defines us. And so that we do have to be bold and pushing back and in sending forth a positive message about what it means to our common humanity and how we are all, as you say, united as one, which leads me to final question. Uh, sure. And that is, as well, I believe when you call a gentleman, in fact, uh, I will quote him, Elder, Elder Patrick uh, Curran, I believe, uh, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, once said to his general convention in Salt Lake City, and maybe uh, this was featured on uh, your forum's website, but he said in relationship to the immigrant uh, crisis and the border uh, crisis, he said that this moment does not define them, meaning immigrants and refugees, but our response will help define us. I believe this to be the case as far as the church and the wider faith community uh, is involved, concerned as we face the COVID-19 crisis. It will not define immigrants or others, but our response will certainly define us and who we claim to be uh, as a church, as a faith community, and even as a nation, and shall I say, who we want to be. Uh, and so I wanna ask you, what is the message that you want to leave for those in the faith community who are listening in regard to the role that we must play? And what is the message that you would like to leave to the wider uh, nation as we listen in? You know, I had not thought about that, um, that moment uh, with Elder Kieran. It was um, in 2016, it was a, you know, uh, the, the LDS Church's biannual general conference. And I was actually in Salt Lake for that. And I remember in this auditorium of 21,000 people, as he was speaking, um, the room became just, it was dead silent. Uh, it was just, it was an incredible moment. And it was very much in reaction to the Syrian refugee crisis that the faith community had mobilized around. Um, and you know, as you were talking about that, I, you're absolutely right. I think the way that the faith community that all of us respond is more of a definition of us than it is of anybody else. So in that way, I think it is more of, it's much more than welcoming the stranger at this point. Um, it is much, much more than just being, only being welcoming. And that is, it's important. But I think that we as a country and institutions of faith have to go beyond that and say, uh, um, you know, we are going to be in relation with you. Um, we're going to open our doors to your communities, your needs, our, make sure our food bank um, is multilingual, make sure that we are reaching out to the, the leaders within your, your faith community, your communities, and, uh, and really use this moment to go beyond welcoming and 
develop relationships and friendships and partnerships that live beyond this crisis. Um, because we are going to make it through this. Um, and we may or may not you know, make it through this crisis uh, um, in a way that is not kind of deeply polarizing, but I do think that at the local level, these kinds of partnerships, these types of relationships that blossom into friendships long-term long uh, will make the country a better place. Mr. Ali Nurani, thank you for that. You have reminded us through this conversation of our common humanity. And this crisis has revealed that and it has offered us, if you will, an opportunity to reclaim it and a common humanity that will be important long after we indeed do make it through this crisis. And so I thank you for joining us this afternoon. I thank you for your work and I look forward to the work that we can do together. And I hope that everyone listening lives into the challenge really that you have set before us all to decide who we want to be and to live into that.